0: I'm Collier Landry. This is Moving Past Murder, Episode 1, New Year's Eve. I'm here with my, what do we call you?
1: What are we calling me these days? Your sidekick? Sidekick, producer,
0: <laughs> vested parties, I don't know.
1: Partner in crime these Partner
0: days. Partner in crime. Yes. Yeah, so here we are. And we are discussing my story. So uh, let's get into it, let's shall we? Let's do When I was 11 years old on New Year's Eve 1989. I awoke to the sound of two loud thuds. I then heard 12 footsteps as they slowly walked down the hall, and something instinctively told me, don't look up. The next morning when I woke up, I rushed to my mother's bedroom to find out that she was missing. Instinctively, I was looking for bloodstains and things of that nature because I had feared the worst. When I went downstairs and confronted my father, he said, well, mommy took a little vacation, caller. Told me not to call the police, not to call the FBI, that she would be back. They got in a fight. She threw credit cards at him and her purse, and that's what I had heard in the middle of the night.
1: Wow. Really interesting. So he actually told you not to call anybody?
0: Yes, and specifically said... Don't call the FBI, which I thought was really strange. (laughs)
1: Because that's the first thing you tell your 11-year-old child. Yeah. Is don't call the FBI.
0: And being that I grew up in a very small town in Ohio, a very rural town, it wasn't exactly a hotbed of FBI activity. So, yes, it was very strange.
1: Definitely. Now, I know, too, you had said something about uh, the fact that a friend of your mom's called because your mom didn't show up for something, I believe.
0: We had a a lunch scheduled, so this was New Year's Eve. She didn't show up, so she had called the house, and my grandmother, who was my father's mother, had come to stay with us the night before. And this wasn't really out of the ordinary because my grandmother and my mother were very close. She wasn't necessarily close with her mother, who had passed at that time. But she was very close to my father's mother, and... She came to stay with us for the New Year's holiday. Uh, she picked up the phone and said, you know, Noreen wasn't here, and they got into a fight, and she left. I called back that friend and said, you know, look, this is what I heard. Please call the police. <laughs> and that's what ended up happening.
1: And that's um, still amazing to me. I mean, even watching Forensic Files and, you know, seeing your very stoic, put-together little 12-year-old face— on that stand and how you could have just kept your wits about you throughout all of this and knowing and even the comment that you made to your mom's friend like, you know, I can't talk. You know, I can't tell you anything. I can't really, I'm not supposed to be on the phone, you know, but you also were making it very clear to her that you knew something was up.
0: Yeah, I was very specific. So I remember they filed a missing persons report I think it was January 1st, 1990, the police came to the house and they were just, you know, uniformed officers. They were talking to my grandmother and she was hysterical because police were inside the house and I pulled one of those officers aside as we were upstairs looking at my mother's uh, bedroom. I said, look, I said, I don't trust my father as far as I can throw him. I said, something has happened to my mother. But they they treated it like a missing persons case and it started. Of, you know, the newspapers put it out and the unique thing was... Is, you know, I grew up in this very small town called Mansfield, Ohio. My father was a doctor. You know, in small towns, they're not really into investigating people of stature. There was a lot of resistance at looking at this other than just writing it off as a missing persons report where, you know, they got in a fight, she left, she'll be back soon. I knew differently. And what had happened is because of the New Year's holiday, things were kind of slow, and Detective Lieutenant David Messmore had seen the missing persons report, come across one of the desks and kind of picked it up and looked at it and said, this is interesting. Wife of a doctor, missing. Okay, let me go check this out. And he ended up coming to my house to talk to me. And I had, again, pulled him aside from my grandmother, who at, you know, 11, almost 12 years old, I could steadily outrun a 70-year-old woman um, and brought him off into another room and said, my mother's would never leave me. You know, she had never left my side my entire life. And she had, you know, I knew something was wrong. And I said, my mother would never do this. And he believed me. Thank God.
1: Thank God. And then you actually brought it to their attention that you had an idea of where your mom might be buried.
0: That was, yes, that was true. But there was a period of when Dave Messmore came to the house, which was... You know, I think maybe January 2nd, 1990. And then when they finally found my mother's body, which was January 25th, 1990, you know, there's a period of obviously 25 days for anyone that can do their math where, you know, nobody knew what was going on. So I would have sort of secret meetings. So my father was starting a new medical practice in Erie, Pennsylvania. And, you know, for those of you that don't really know what the tri-state area is over there, you know, Ohio, Pennsylvania, New York. Erie, Pennsylvania is probably about four and a half hours from where I grew up, which is about the central state of Ohio. And, um, you know, it was probably in the north, uh, eastern corner of Pennsylvania. So it's quite a drive to say the least. So my father was making trips back and forth to set up this new medical practice that he was going to do, which would involve like workers' compensation. And, uh, so I had time when my father wasn't there to try to Sneak off and make these phone calls. My grandmother would sort of, you know, because it was a Christmas holiday, I wasn't back to school yet, where, you know, I would sneak off, get on the phone, try to find out, tip people off what's going on my mom's friends. Like, I don't know. I'm, like, looking through her clothes, trying to see if there's blood stains. I know my mom's not here. I knew she wouldn't leave. I found this one purse, you know, uh, that she wouldn't have left without, that type of thing. My mother was very attached to her purses.
1: Now she was designer person. right? She was a designer
0: purse person, yes.
1: So what is the purse that she would not have loved without?
0: A navy blue Dooney and Burke.
1: Navy blue Dooney and Burke.
0: Yep, a navy blue Dooney and Burke purse that she had that was very special to her, which was like her all-around, you know, mom bag. When I finally got back to school, which I believe was on January the 3rd, 1990, I had my principal call, Lieutenant David Messmore, so I could talk to him because I was away from my house. I could say whatever I wanted and not be afraid of my father. And so over the course of the investigation, it went from a missing persons report into, you know, more of a, um, an investigation into uh, foul play.
1: So now your school helped you as well.
0: Yeah, my principal, Lynn Riggenbach, uh, would let me go into the office on my lunch hour and then I would make these phone calls to Dave Messmore to tell him information. I was doing things from like, you know, we had these bookshelves in throughout our house that had, were crawl space. So you pull the bookshelf out and there's like a crawl space. You know, it's pretty typical in the Midwest. And uh, I would pull those bookcases out like looking for her body. I would pull those, you know, bookcases out looking for anything um, to, like, to see if my dad had stashed her bags or her clothes there, any any sort of thing that would be a clue to what might have happened. So I guess at the time, I was sort of an amateur sleuth and, you know, Batman had just came out. So maybe I was trying to be Batman. Who knows?
1: <laughs> hey, well, you know what? It worked because you kept at it and who knows if it wasn't for you, you know, staying at it, going into the principal's office on your lunch hour to make phone calls. I mean, what 12-year-old is sitting there planning this out? Okay. After geography, I have lunch hour and I'm going to run to the principal's office and see, you know, how long I can spend on the phone discussing this before I have to go back to class. I mean, you would have to be planning that out like every day.
0: Yeah, it was every day. And I would, you know, Dave would come to the school to talk to me too and we would discuss things and I would always want to know what's going on. Have you found any clues? Have you done this? I was really proactive in it. And, you know, as were my mother's friends, I believe, because a lot of them, even though they didn't know the knowledge that I had, known of of hearing the the thuds and, and being terrified in the middle of the night. And, you know, everyone knew that my father had a really bad temper. He was a womanizer. And, you know, there was a long sort of history of, you know, physical abuse, mental abuse, verbal abuse with my mother, with myself. So it wasn't really a surprise. And even though he was a doctor, you know, that was sort of his other, his, you know, the Jekyll and Hyde sort of scenario. So, yeah, you know, kept telling Dave and then One night, I went with my father in his pickup truck, and he went inside to pay for gas at the gas station. And when he went inside, or maybe went to buy lottery tickets, he always bought lottery tickets. And I opened up the the center console in his car, and I was searching through stuff, and I found these two pictures. And one was of the outside of a house in the snow. And another was of his girlfriend, Sherry Campbell, who at the time I didn't know, but was pregnant with my soon-to-be half-sister, and her two kids. And they were sitting in front of a fireplace that was wrapped in plastic. So it looked like it was like a new fireplace. Anyways, I found these pictures, and I told Dave Messmore about them. And that's what ended up for them finding that my father had purchased a house in Erie, Pennsylvania, using my mother's name and having Sherry forge my mother's name on a document as N. Sherry Boyle because my mother's name was Noreen Schmid Boyle. So she wrote N. Sherry Boyle and they purchased the house. So while all this is going on, you know, in the background, you know, I'm living basically essentially in complete fight or flight mode all the time because my father is very violent. But I had this weird sort of scenario where my father was very much growing up into violence and, and violent movies and guns and things like that. And he was, you know, he claimed to be a fighter pilot in the Navy, which I ended up finding, of course, and, you know, was not true. <laughs> he was in the Navy, but not a fighter pilot. Um, I probably saw a Top Gun way too many times, the, more than any other child you have to endure. <laughs> He's like, oh, that's what I used to do.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Not so much that. Yeah, I mean, he even went into telling people that he was a pilot for the Blue Angels, which for those of you that may not know who the Blue Angels are, they are like an elite fighter squadron from the United States Navy. That You know, is like the top of the top fighter pilots in the, war, in the world. That's
1: crazy. It's like, so being a doctor wasn't enough. He had to have other things that people looked up to him for.
0: Yeah. He he was a good embellisher of many, many things, sadly. But uh, back to the story. So basically there was this sort of 25 days in limbo where I'm basically with my father when he would come home from his practice, setting up his practice in Erie, Pennsylvania. And I say setting up his practice with air quotes, as Brenda will attest to. <laughs> But, uh, you know, he would come back and and I remember he had taken me and I just got a Nintendo. I was the last kid in my sort of group of friends to ever get a Nintendo. So my mom bought me a Nintendo for Christmas and I got this game called Double Dragon, which was or Double Dragon 2, which was like a street fighting game, you know, and Contra, which is like, you know, these are games that my generation grew up with. And I remember my father seeing it and he goes, this is so violent. I can't believe this. I would never have bought this. I'm looking at him going, you're all about this. This stuff, like, what do you, what do you All mean? Right. So it's like he had this sort of like weird thing that shifted in him, and I remember, you know, he was sore one night, and he had me rub like Ben Gay on his back because he was really sore. And I was like, this is super weird, man. I had tipped that uh, Dave Messmore off to what to what ended up being the house, and I remember I woke up to flash forward. So I, I'm living in this sort of fight or flight scenario for 25 days, I have my sister who was adopted from Taiwan, who was three years old, who I know was in the bed when my mother was killed. And she knew, you know, she's you know saying to me, I know, no, Guga, I know, no, we're mommy. We're both helpless. And my father's mother, meanwhile, is like trying to be our mom. And she's like you know, 75 years old at the time. And she doesn't know what's going on. And, and here's my father running back and forth to Erie, Pennsylvania, you know, 40, you know, four and a half hours away every day. All of this is happening, I'm you know, my grandmother's taking care of my sister and I I'm trying to do schoolwork, go to school, trying to help figure out what happened to my mother, is if I'm some amateur sleuth here, talking to Dave Messmore, and my father says to me, well he goes, "Holly, I'm going to have a, a I have a medical conference in Florida. I want you to go with me. Just you and me." And I'm as soon as he said that to me and this was probably around like January 21st or 22nd of 1990, I was freaked out because I thought, he's on to me. He knows something's up. He knows I've been talking to people. Like he's, I'm a smart kid, you know, I'm his son. Of course, I'm going to do what I think is going to, you know, be right. Right. So, right. you know, my father sort of has this whole about face and his behavior. He's, you know, always been a very aggressive, very, you know, machismo sort of guy. And now all of a sudden he's turned into this sort of empathetic, kind of, you know, oh, violence is bad, and this, that, and the other, and I can't believe you're playing these bad video games. I'm thinking to myself, who is this guy? Right? So there was this sort of weird shift in his whole psyche. Meanwhile, you know, I'm sort of terrified of him knowing that I am talking to the police. And so he comes to me, and he says, and he comes home from his work one night, and he says, you know, Collier, I have a medical conference in Florida, and I think that you and I should take a trip together, just you and me. And this was around January the 21st, 22nd of 1990, and I knew, I'm probably not going to make it back from this trip. And I was a very good swimmer as a child. My mother, I think that was one of the first things my mom ever did was force me to learn how to swim. Wow. Because I grew up part of my life on the ocean. And then when even I would go to swim camp and all that stuff when we moved to Ohio. And so I was very active kid, even with my asthma. And I knew when he said that to me, I was like, there's something no. And I remember I went to school the next day and I told I. Again, told my principal. I said, "Call Dave Messmore. And I told Dave, I was like, "He wants to take me to Florida to this medical conference." And you know, his usually his medical conferences were in Florida, and I would mm-hmm. we would go as a family, my mother and I, and and my father, and it was a normal thing. So that wasn't out of the ordinary. The only thing that was out of the ordinary is was just me and him. <laughs>
1: right, and you're like, and there's going to be a very scary accident. And... Yeah,
0: exactly. Exact sharks eat me, or you know, I, I drown somehow. Yeah. I tell this to Dave Massmore and he becomes immediately very concerned. And so on January the 24th, 1990, about six o'clock in the morning, I get woken up and there the entire house is flooded with police officers and, in, in, you know, lab coats and stuff. It's like the crime lab and all of this. And then, you know, we, uh, I saw, um, you know, I got woken up by these, these two people who were like, I said, who are you? And they said, we're from Children's Services we're going to take you with us and you need to pack a bag we need to leave within 20 minutes. And so that was um I just had to pack I, I didn't know what was going on but I had to pack a bag with you know clothes and you know whatever toys I may have had or something I don't know and and You know, this was like, uh, sadly, the last time I ever saw my dog because they wouldn't let me take my dog with me. And they said, oh, we'll we'll come back for your dog. And then it never happened.
1: Oh, who ended up with your dog?
0: Well, that's a story for another moment. I never knew. I didn't actually find out who ended up with my dog. I always wondered what happened to him. It was this really, not to get off sidetrack, but, you know, it was something that really stuck with me as a kid, as an adult. Like, I always wondered when I made a murder in Mansfield. And we did the screening at, um, in Mansfield on the second day of our two sold-out shows. The, uh, this woman came up to me and she said, I think we had your dog. Aww. Was it a Wired Hair Fox Terrier? And I said, yes. And um, she's like, I just want you to know that he, she's like, I grew up on a farm. We had horses. We had pigs. He lived the best life. He was so loved. He had so much fun. He would run around. He was friends with all the little pigs. And he would sleep with the piggies in the pen. We would find him in there because they were buddies. And I'll tell you what, there are a lot of things that come out when doing a project like that that is so near and dear to your heart. And you do it for all the right reasons. Mm -hmm. You hope to get some closure from doing a project like that. Right. And when I found that out about my dog. I mean we started I started crying. It was I was a mess. Oh I'm trying gosh. not to cry now. I was a mess, but in such a good way that I finally had that answer like this is what happened to Gowdy, my dog that I never saw again. And you know, for for a child, I mean even now, you know, when I I had um you know, I had a, uh, I, have, I have a Chihuahua now, but I had two Chihuahuas for the longest time and one of them was very sick. Every health problem you could imagine enlarged heart, reverse coughing, luxating patella, you name it. And I feel like I held on to Elvis maybe a little longer than I should have just because I just didn't want to let him go because it made me feel like my first dog, like Gaudi, and I never got to say goodbye to Gaudi and all that stuff. And so he passed away shortly after I made the film, but before I had the screening. So when I found that out about Gaudi, it really made me, it really brought some real closure so.
1: That's amazing. Yeah. I'm like picturing babe and the mama dog and. Right. You know how she mothered him and that's just sweet. I love
0: that. Yeah. Yeah it's cool. So yeah it was a good experience. So Children's Services took me to the principal of my school. Her name was Lynn Riggenbach, Went to her house. They're like you're gonna stay here a couple of days till we figure everything out. Then they gave me a caseworker that came and met. Her name was Karen Jordan and she explained some things to me and then you know I stayed my first night there and I was a very severe asthmatic growing up. It probably started when I was like nine and a half or 10. But by the time I was like 11, 11 and a half, it was like full blown. Like, I'm talking steroid shots. I remember not being able to breathe one time, and my mom had me at the house, and my dad, like, flew in from his practice with, like, a shot of prednisone, and literally stabs it in my arm, and, and, and like, all of a my airways open up. It was bad. I, I had really bad asthma for, for a few years in my life. But that night at the Rigginbox house, I didn't have my medicine I didn't have anything, and I had probably the worst asthma attack I ever had in my life. And I actually, at that point, this was January 24th, 1990, in the evening, I remember thinking to myself, I think I'm going to die. I literally think because I cannot breathe, I am going to die.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: I think I finally maybe got like an hour's worth of sleep or something, and they said, okay, we're going to take you to the emergency room in the morning. And they brought me into the hospital, and I remember, you know, Probably a lot of the listeners may or may not remember, but there were these things way back in the day (laughs) called honor boxes where they kept uh, newspapers in, where you put your coins in and you take a newspaper out. It was called an honor box because you would take just one newspaper that you paid for and not take all of them and give them to your friends. Right. I got shuffled past the honor box like I couldn't see the the paper that was in the honor box. And it's kind of stuck in my mind, like, why are they doing that? Okay, whatever. So this was the morning of January 25th, 1990, so... Got the breathing treatment, got the inhaler. Okay, cool, I can breathe. And then they, I remember, you know, it was a family friend who was a doctor that was there. His name was Dr. Behe. He's the one that did the treatment for me. And then uh, Lynn Rigabach, my, you know, principal for my school, you know, she said to me, she goes, you know, call your um, Lieutenant Messmore, found your mother. And I remember there was like this eternal pause like probably the longest pause of my life, I was staring at this electrical, <laughs> electrical outlet in this, in this room at the hospital, this little small room, not much bigger than the room that we're currently in. Wow. We're recording this podcast. <laughs> um, I remember I was staring at this electrical outlet for whatever reason, and it's long silence, you know, call your Lieutenant Messmore, found your mother, and she was dead. Wow. And the first words that came out of my mouth were, "That bastard."
1: Wow. That's pretty like strong language for a twelve-year-old to be.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was still eleven. I wasn't even twelve yet.
1: Cash, geez, eleven. But uh, that bastard, you know. It's like you always wonder, like, what the first thing you would say would be about someone who had done something horrible to you but that kind of sums it up that had to be just like crushing you knew it I mean you knew deep down that that was what had happened but hearing it out loud from someone else you know telling you that that everything that you were thinking was absolutely correct and And you were right, and it's probably, like, the one time in your life that you absolutely wished you weren't.
0: Oh, yeah, you don't want to be right. No, you You don't don't want want to to be right. (laughs) You don't want to be right. You don't want it to be your father. You want to pretend it's all a dream or a nightmare, rather. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, um, there's nothing that, uh, in that situation that anyone can say, you know, that's going to bring that person back. You have these moments where you, you, you then start to, you know, you see in movies, right? These dramatic things happen, and there's all these flashbacks that just kind of cascade on the screen, right? And I'm a filmmaker, so I, I know how this works. And, uh, yeah, that's what happens, I feel like, in real life when you get hit with something that is so traumatic. Even though part of my psyche had braced me because I did know that she was dead. And then to be struggling the night before breathing while literally detectives are unearthing her body beneath the basement floor of my father's house that he had bought for his mistress, is pretty crazy.
1: That is crazy. You know, and it makes me think, too, you know, you're going through all of this heartbreak, all of this loss. You don't know what's happened to your dog. And I'm picturing Gowdy at this moment having like a scene from the sound of music out mm-hmm. on this farm you know as he's spinning and chasing things and sure you know wishing you knew that he was okay so that something in your life could be you know you could feel like it was better some you know, sense of normalcy yeah some sense of normalcy some somebody's having you know and living their best life ever because you know it's certainly not you you're yeah. you know going through the worst days of your life and You know, and it sounds like to add insult to injury from what you've told me, you didn't feel like your family really stepped up to help you. Like you were, you know, 11, 12 years old and you were all alone to be in foster care after basically losing both of your parents. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, you know, there's family out there, but you don't feel like anybody's really, you know, lining up to no. You know, be the my, um, there for you.
0: Yeah. And my my mother's sister, you know, they, they had sort of a, a strained relationship, which I didn't really understand at the time, but then I ended up finding out why. Because my father, you know, molested their two daughters during physicals, which we'll talk about in another That's chapter. That's a little creepy. That's extremely creepy and very tragic. But yeah, so their relationship was strained. So she came to Mansfield... And, you know, she'd only been there a couple of times. I hadn't really seen my aunt a lot because of the strain on the relationship, all caused by my father for the most part. So, yeah, I was left sort of to my own devices to process all of this in foster care, no family, really not even any real, I mean, my friends. I remember, you know, after being at the hospital and then going back to my school and it was like the Chinese New Year celebration and my mom was like the one who was helping to do orchestrate all that. And it was this supposedly this big fun thing. And I just remember going in to my high school gym or high school, (laughs) to my middle school or whatever it was, elementary school, gymnasium, and seeing my classmates, because I was in the fifth grade at that time. And everybody was in tears. Everybody. The faculty, my friends, parents, I mean, everybody was. Everybody was devastated. And there's there's this like event for the school and nobody was into it. Yeah, it was it was crazy. It was crazy. And my mom had, you know, I was a testament to my mother's sort of impact on the world around her. You know, I think it's also amplified being in a small town as well, but I really do believe the impact of her on other people that everyone was just absolutely devastated that she had been taken from us.
1: Who else did you tell about your theory besides the detective?
0: Well, I told my... um, well, I call her my Aunt Shelley, but my you know, my mom's best friend, Shelley Bowden, I told her, and she believed mm-hmm. that something had happened. She was, you know, sort of in a state of disbelief because she didn't want to believe something like that, but she knew yeah. that if J- my father, Jack, you know, was left like, my mother would never leave me alone with my father. Right. Never. Never. If she was Even if she was over it and done and this, and they were in the middle of getting a divorce, right? Because one of the caveats that my mother had In her sort of arrangement with my father, what I later found out was sort of an arrangement after a certain point because my father was a chronic womanizer and he would have all these girlfriends, all this stuff. And she said, you know, look, I draw the line in the sand is you can go do what you want. You know, you involve our son. That's it. Right. And when he introduced me to Sherry in the summer of 1989 and I told and he told me to lie about it. And I did to my mother, and then I was so overwhelmed with guilt that I told her the truth, and that's when she filed for divorce with my father. Oh, wow. That was like it. And that's when things got really, really bad, you know, leading up to that. The divorce and every—I mean, it just got so nasty. My father became so nasty. It it just was—it was horrible, you know.
1: Well, and I know that you—when you were on the stand— You were very, you know, very matter of fact and very succinct and everything that you were saying. And you kind of broke character when you were telling the story of when your dad, you know, had Sherry just magically show up at an outing you were having with him. And and he said to you, oh, look, it's Sherry. What? And you, you mocked him when you were. On the stand and that was phenomenal to me because it made me feel like this is your opportunity to really kind of grind it into him that none of this was okay.
0: Yeah, he said uh he said to to quote it perfectly, Well look who's here, it's Sherry. And uh his enthusiasm was just I was like, Oh god. You know, it was just so <laughs> So egregious. One of those things, I remember that it was, like, memorialized in all the newspapers, like, as the court of the decade. <laughs> oh,
1: it's so great. <laughs> just, I mean, every time I watch uh, Forensic files, But not great. Re- well, yeah, not great, but funny. I mean, it's just, like, this kid is, you know, I wouldn't say getting his revenge, but he's getting justice. He is making it happen. He is a one-man wrecking crew, and... You know, what kid— I was pissed. Yeah. And what kid actually gets to, you know, go head-to-head with one of their parents? Well, literally,
0: have their day in court. Yeah, what kid exactly actually gets right. to have their day in court?
1: Against one of their, you know, their parents that has done something, you know, absolutely wrong, and you're so the heinous, one. So you heinous. Know. So heinous, and you get to hold him accountable. Accountable,
0: Yeah. And that's you know. what it was. It became very personal for me. And, when, and we'll get into this in the next episode. But when we talk about, you know, me finding out, you know, OK, it's confirmed for me she's dead, this, that and the other. Then it's like, OK, what's phase two? And the, the prosecutors and, and Dave Messmore and everybody were like, we don't want you, you don't need to testify. We don't want you to testify. And I was like, oh, no. I am going to. I mean, I testified in front of the grand jury because that's what was able to bring down his indictment because of everything I heard with the thuds and, and whatever woke me up, which could have been a scream. Because I used to sleep as a, like a log. Yeah. I mean, I haven't since then. But, like, as a kid, I would sleep like a log. And it was always my mother's saving grace to people because I'm a very energetic person even to this day. But as a kid, I was, like, probably out of my mind. Um, and my mother never gave me coffee. I never had anything like that. But I was a very energy filled young man and my mother and people would say to my mom, what, um, like, how do you, how do you do it? She's like, because he sleeps for 12 hours every night. (laughs) (laughs) He goes to bed at eight and he wakes up at eight. It's a miracle (laughs) because I was just like bouncing off walls, no sugar, no caffeine, just naturally. I mean, I'm still that way. It's, it's, kind of funny you
1: have two switches on and off
0: yep yep I do
1: sounds like she was a wonderful lady and let's let's talk about her for a little bit sure because some of the stories that you've told me about the fact that you guys would go shopping together and you knew more about designers than (laughs) any kid that I ever knew in fact probably you still know more than I do um (laughs) It was amazing to hear you ask people questions and like one of the first questions I think you asked Mrs. Messmore is, how many Louis Vuitton purses do you have?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's what they remember. That, that's wonderfully um, archived in the annals of history and A Murder in Mansfield. <laughs> yeah, my mother was <laughs> – my mother never really wanted to leave Philadelphia. She never wanted to really leave the big city. And uh, so, yeah, my mother loved to shop. My mother was into – both my parents were very educated people. They both went to University of Pennsylvania. Obviously, my father was a doctor. My mother was a dental hygienist. And I found out, you know, in making the film, one of the cool things is, you know, my mother really was the impetus for my father getting into medical school because she supported him because she graduated with her degree in dental hygienistry. And was able at that time, we're living in Philadelphia, to make like something like twenty-five dollars an hour, which that's a lot of money. Back in the seventies. Seventies,
1: yeah.
0: You know, late sixties, early seventies. Mm-hmm. That's that's a pretty good living. Yeah. For somebody, a, a female, you know, in making a film like *A Murder Mansfield*, when you kind of do all the pre-production, I, you know, I went and talked to a lot of my, you know, some of my relatives, I should say. That would speak to me. I mean, it never made it in the film, but I, I, I got to find out really a lot of nice things about my mother. The impact that my mother had on the world around her with the people that she was connected to, her friends, her family, her, just everyday people. I mean, she was a very generous and giving person who tried to help everyone she could. And I remember, like, when I was a kid, one of the things that would happen is every year during Christmas— if I wanted Santa to bring me toys, I had to give away like half of my toys to Toys for Tots. So we would go through my toys and I would choose which ones I would keep and which ones I would give away. And I was always taught like, you are privileged. You have a mommy and a daddy and a, and a house and 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 food and you need to be grateful for that. She was always that type of person. I know that If she had lived past, you know, me being 11, if I was a bratty teenager, she would probably yank me by my ears and go, yep, we're leaving school and I'm taking you to India so you can see what people, what kids do when they live on the street. And then you can come right, snap right back out of your little temper tantrum and Realize how good life is for you. Right. I think we kind of lose that nowadays in our sort of sense of entitlement society that we sometimes live in or we do live in. But I digress on that point. All that to say this she was a very worldly, educated person who always sought out the good in people and always treated everyone with kindness and love and respect. And I learned that from her. And I think that's her greatest gift to me is that that's what she taught me while she was here on earth.
1: Absolutely. Well, and you've turned out to be a pretty good guy. You know, you're you're all right to hang out with. So
0: thanks, Brenda. You're welcome. I pay her to say that, by the way. <laughs> Brenda is always wearing her Crime Junkie jacket, by the way. So shout out to the girls over at Crime Junkie, Brit and Ashley.
1: Yes, they're fabulous. They are my faves. And I had to make my own custom jacket wearing everything, all of their patches. I even have full body chills. I'm wearing that as well. So I'm very excited. I'm still waiting for them to come up with a um, patch that says, it's never just a mannequin. That is like my favorite thing that they say.
0: So this concludes part one of my story. This is New Year's Eve. I'm Collier Landry.
1: And I'm Brenda Fisher.
0: And this is Moving Past Murder. Thanks, y'all. For more information, please visit movingpastmurder.com or mpmpodcast.com. The film A Murder in Mansfield is available on Investigation Discovery, Hulu, and Amazon Prime Video. This podcast is a production of Don't Touch My Radio in association with RSA Entertainment.